Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. It's review time on today's show and we've got Denis Villeneuve's sci-fi blockbuster Dune up for discussion. The film is an adaptation of the best-selling 1965 sci-fi novel of the same name by Frank Herbert. It's set on the arid planet of Arrakis, the source of a powerful substance called spice that prolongs life and enables interstellar travel. Arrakis and its native people, the Fremen, have been under the oppressive rule of the House of Harkonnen, but the planet is offered up to a new leader, Duke Leto Atreides, seemingly as a gift from the Emperor. But all is not as it seems. Leto suspects he could be walking into a sandy trap. And as he arrives in Arrakis with his family, they swiftly find themselves at war over the spice trade with the Harkonnen. At the heart of the story is Paul Atreides, played by Timothy Chalamet, the son of Leto, who has been trained to eventually take over his father's duties. He embarks on a mission across the desert with his mother, played by Rebecca Ferguson, to fight for peace between houses. But danger lurks in the dunes. The Harkonnen soldiers are hot on their heels. The Fremen, who are understandably wary of the incoming House of Atreides after years of mistreatment, are prepared to fight for their planet and don't get us started on the giant sandworms that could suck you into the desert in a heartbeat. It's a film of epic proportions, from the explosions to the architecture, from Hans Zimmer's soundtrack to Stellan Skarsgård's fat suit. And I'm going to attempt to get to grips with it over the next half an hour with the help of the film critics Simran Hans and Karen Krizanovich, who join me now. Hello, both of you. Lovely to have you here. Um, I feel like we should have some sort of shifting sands music, some kind of whistling sound effects. Let's, though, have a clip to get us into the mood. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! There's only awakening in my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. You need to be ready. You never met Harkness before. They're not human, they're brutal. The Duke's son sees too much. This is why Dune. Kill them all. Uh, that is Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Um, Simran, there's the expectations of the director of Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, Arrival. And then there's the expectations of Dune, which has been made, well, one and a half times before, I suppose. What were your expectations of the film and did it meet them? I'm glad you've asked me this question first because, <laughs> number one, never read the book. Number two, never seen the David Lynch film. Number three, not seen the documentary about Alejandro Jodorowsky's botched attempt. Number four, like, I like sci-fi enough. I'm sort of genre ambivalent. Your expectations for Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I I like Star Wars, don't get me wrong. I, I guess number five, I don't particularly like the films of Denis Villeneuve. So I sort of went in thinking, I'm quite interested in this film. Everybody's talking about it. It's one of the tentpole blockbusters of the year. But nothing about it really should appeal to me. And I weirdly loved it. Mm. Um, I just got (laughs) swallowed up by it, um, shall we say. Okay, so it was the sandworm you were the poor chap running across the sand <laughs> and it gobbled you up and you were happy to live in its belly because it is it is a, it is something like that it's got a kind of propulsive mad hugeness about it right 
I saw it on an IMAX screen mm. and the vastness of it really reminded me of how immersive cinema can be. I was so happy to see a movie of that kind of scale and grandeur and beauty on a massive screen. I was really into it. Where does it fit then in the June canon, Karen? We'll come to you for this one. All oh, right. Well, yeah. I would say right now it it, it, it tops the mark um, <laughs> yeah. because there have been a lot of attempts at Dune. I mean, back in the 70s, a couple of attempts were, were, were made. And then, of course... So, so someone talked about Jodorowsky's... Yeah, Jodorowsky. And, and that was, of course... I mean, they got everything assembled and then fell through because of lack of finance. I mean, they had the cast and everything was all set up. And some of the visuals that still exist in the storyboards yeah. are amazing. It's a phenomenal documentary. I it, think we'll a, come on a, to that It's a great later, documentary. Yeah. It is a great documentary. But it doesn't really help you watching. <laughs> it doesn't filter into this at all. Yeah. I haven't seen the the David Lynch for a long, long time because I'm still I still see that the the gif of gif or gif of um, Sting wearing the underpants and that. What was funny was that Sting was in was in Lynch's tune. Yeah. Mick okay. Jagger was cast in that same role for Jodorowsky's tune, mm. wasn't he? So it's obviously mm-hmm. I'm amazed it wasn't. Nobody told me Sting Harry, was in Harry this Styles movie. For this one. <laughs> Maybe I would have watched it earlier if I had known that. It's great. It's actually it it's great. great fun, but it, it is. Somebody was saying it's really distracting. David Lynch is doing, just kind of looking at it. Look at the stuff. Yeah. You kind of miss the miss the whole plot. And I what? Okay, I like to hear like you know hoofbeats in in the distance of what people think about films. Like it's great. Okay, somebody said to me who saw it very early on, it's great until it isn't. Right. <laughs> Another one said. It's really pretentious. And I thought, great. You know, I went to this. I had to see it. I didn't want to know anything about it. So I did a lot of my research for this show. In the taxi this morning. Yes, the taxi this morning. (laughs) I didn't realize it was part one of two. But I'm thinking, this is part one and they haven't filmed the second part? Yeah, so this is done on a kind of in an old fashioned way. This yeah. isn't kind of prequelized out of its yeah. out of all out of its life. How how does that work? I mean, I guess they're just seeing if anyone likes this one. Are they? Is that is no? That that's exactly the right. Thing? That's exactly yeah. right. They're talking to one of the executives, and I've I've got her name um, here in my notes somewhere. Um, and she was saying, "Well, we're not we're not going to rely just on box office returns, but it looks as if it's cleared its production budget already." globally and now it needs to make up because you know it's production budget mm-hmm. and then again for marketing to to make the sequel so i think uh yeah i think it's it's in also this really isn't a standalone film i don't think no not at all there were lots of part of the book by the way i mean there were lots of dunes i mean there's dune which sold 12 million copies by the way so it's a massive it's one of the biggest selling sci-fi novels ever and all the rest of it one of the biggest books biggest best-selling books ever but there were lots of bits to it i think there were kind of six maybe books in the Dune series so there's plenty to play with it's, mm. it's very capable of being a kind of Star Wars kind of mad universe like that which keeps on keeps on giving Karen it could keep on giving yeah but then you think about Master and Commander I mean there's a million of those books and they made one movie by condensing about five yeah so bit of a shame yeah that's well, quite a good film. One thing that they kind of say about June, they, the people who love <laughs> June. Um, the, Don't the, other, the, other the June fans. <laughs> the people who are, who are sort of really passionate about this series is they kind of, to me, they overstate, although I, that, it would be unfair to say overstate because I haven't read the books, but they kind of emphasise how dense the text is and how complex the story is. And I don't doubt that for a second, but what really kind of struck me about this was a sort of stripped-back simplicity of both the visual world that um, Villeneuve creates. It's so kind of clean and immersive and clear in the way that sort of set up. And just 
sort of how legible it was, really. Mm. Um, it is a long film and, you know, there are kind of lots of, I guess, complicated politics between the different houses, the House of Atreides and the House of Harkonnen. Um, good colonialism versus bad colonialism, I guess, yeah. if you want to simplify it. But I could understand what was going on. I could locate myself in the film and, and I think that is the sign of good storytelling. Mm. You're right and I think that's a great word for it, legibility, right, with the story which is convoluted and sort of baroque in, in its telling in the novel and in David Lynch's film where you kind of don't quite know what's going on quite, quite a lot of the time. Is this helped by the production design um, no, and completely. stuff? Because it's a beautiful looking thing, isn't it? It's a real artefact. The, the costume design, the set design, the shots... No, com- completely. As someone says, clean and beautiful. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, I mean, I mean, Mark Kermode was commenting about how many art directors must have worked on the sandworms alone. And granted, <laughs> really, when you see these things being being put up, maybe you've got concept artists. You usually, have a series of concept artists. You've got art directors. You've got assistant art directors. Then you've got the VFX people. I mean, it's a huge team of people. So you can't make this film without the production design. You really can't. Because so Geiger, H.R. Geiger, who went on to do Alien yeah. uh, for Ridley Scott, mm-hmm. and sort of created that that worked on the Jodorowsky's Jodorowsky. Dune and that's amazing and that's sort of there are a lot of you know yeah echoes mm-hmm. of I guess of that but this is a more simple looking thing isn't it but I have to say that people always go well it's not like the book well it's a different medium number one yeah I mean you can never get the kind of you can never get the kind of detail from a book into a film but the visual shorthand gets as close as you can to that yeah yeah exactly this is they're doing two different things what about Hans Zimmer's soundtrack we talked in the introduction about a film of epic proportions not least the Hans Zimmer's soundtrack Holly and I sat in that IMAX probably with you Simran in that on that and that was monstrous the sound the, the music and the sounds the sounds of the kind of it's almost like whale song isn't it yeah I think like that's another way of conveying the scale, right? Mm. The kinds of sonorous um, rumblings of this desert planet. And I, I just want to go back for a second to, you know, your description, Rob, of, of the plot and the kind of storytelling is bar- well, in the original text is Baroque, because I think visually it's kind of brutalist, right? Mm. The way that the architecture of the planet is, the sort of concrete beiges and greys, a bit Kanye West Yeezy palette, I think. (laughs) Um, But I think, yeah, the the sort of that 60s style brutalism is really interesting given that like the book was written in 65 and it's a futuristic world that looks old. Yeah. Um, and so that gives so it's it this... 20,000 years in the future, supposedly, this film. Exactly, but it, it sort of gives it this timelessness. And I was reading up a little bit about it and, um, you know, I think, I, I hope I'm not butchering this, but I believe that the future that Dune is set in, we've kind of gone full circle with technology mm. and decided um, to destroy all of the man-made intelligence and leave that behind. And so I think it's interesting that like the visual world is kind of set in the past, even though it's the future. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's a, yeah, it's called the Butlerian Jihad. Isn't it in, in, in yes. the book? And basically, yeah, exactly. There's a sort of they, they, there's a sort of like they're machine breakers. They're luddites, kind of. They 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 fear the machine, don't they? The kind of too all-seeing machine, and they kind of smash them all up. So it's just a world of humans and and these huge worms. So that's that's what happens. But it's interesting that word jihad because I wanted to ask you about this kind of we're in a sort of Middle Eastern world here, aren't we? Well, I think there, there's okay. Um, there's there's a book called The Blades, The Saber of Paradise. Yeah. By, do you know about this? No. By, by um, Leslie Blanche and 
that came out in 1960, and it is all about the the, the Islamic world, Caucasus, and and also Russia, and he, and. Herbert actually took a lot of the words, a lot of the phrases from that. So that's why we have this Middle Eastern influence. Right. Because it's also book. read as, an, as a metaphor for the oil trade Absolutely. and the rest of it. Yes, which is and sort colonialism. Of, I think Frank Herbert wouldn't, wouldn't be moved on that, but it's very, I mean, you know, it's there to see, isn't it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, exactly. The, the natural resource that is being plundered, the spice, um, it, you know, you can definitely see that as as oil. And the Fremens are, they've got blue eyes, but they're brown-skinned people um, with these kind of white settlers coming over to oversee the production of, um, of or the harvest of spice. Um, but one other thing about spice that's interesting is that it's got hallucinogenic qualities, right? Mm. So it can facilitate interstellar travel, um, but it also makes you high. Yeah. And so there's a slightly kind of like hallucinogenic, dreamy quality to the, the texture of the film as well, mm. um, which I quite like. It's good stuff, Spice, isn't it? Have you got, <laughs> can you get some? No, I didn't actually. Kind of black Mercedes I, turns up. I, did, <laughs> I didn't go to the IMAX. I'm mean, thinking only, only if you go to the IMAX. Because it was shot in IMAX, wasn't it? So that right. adds that melange. Yeah. I remember reading melange. That just means mixture in French. What the heck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about the cast then? We've mentioned, we've mentioned Tim- Timothy Chalamet as mm. Paul Atreides, this sort of Lawrence of Arabia, sort of messianic sort of figure. How... And he... Does he carry the film? Yeah, well, okay. Uh, people are, are sort of saying, why is Chalamet in absolutely everything? You know, I opened up my sock drawer. There he was. Um, <laughs> and and uh, Villeneuve says, uh, because in the character, in the, in the book, he's supposed to be 15. And he says that Chalamet, who's in the 20s, just when you photograph him, he just looks really young. So he fits he's in really, thin, really well. He's very thin, isn't he? He's kind of, and he's meant to beef up, isn't he, in this film and become the warrior. Hence the joke with prince. Jason Momoa. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he's very good in it, isn't he? I mean, he's big in it. He is, he's he's, he's of epic proportions. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, he does. I think he does carry the film perfectly well. And a lot of people are going to see the movie because of him. Because yeah, they love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oscar Isaac is Leto Atreides. Josh Brolin is the sort of uh, sort of hawkish, warmongering Gurney Halleck. Great name. So, what do we think of what do we think of the ensemble, Simon? I think the women in this film are quite interesting. I feel like Zendaya was really billed as a kind of main character in this film. And uh, Karen's laughing. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) I'm trying not to... Um, because she knows that uh, anyone going in expecting to see lots of Zendaya might be severely disappointed. But hopefully part two will get greenlit and she'll have more to do. That's a very, very good point because I'm thinking, what the heck? And then you're like, Zendaya kind of crosses the screen once. Well, she's in um, a lot of um, flash forwards. Yeah, I I think she's such a kind of compelling screen presence and she's in a lot of mediocre to bad movies and is often the best, most watchable thing about them. Um, we won't name names, Greatest Showman, um, <laughs> Malcolm and Marie, <laughs> etc. But um, I think she's got this star quality about her that makes you want to keep watching her and um, her sort of chemistry with Timothy Chalamet is teased, but you don't really see too much mm. of that. So I felt a little bit shortchanged, but I guess... They've hooked me in. I'll be back for part two. Um, I also thought Charlotte Rampling was um, an interesting use. Uh, I think she's doing her best Tilda Swinton impression um, underneath this hood. She's the the 
one of the leaders of the Bene Gesserit, Bene Gesserit yeah. Um, yeah. which is this sisterhood of all-powerful women who sort of control time and space and are able to harness the power of the voice, which I believe that Dune predates Star Wars, right? So yeah. the force was ripped off from the voice. Um, but for me, I was a bit like, hmm, this sounds familiar. This is a familiar <laughs> trope. Um, <laughs> you just yeah, don't have Tom Jones in, in with the force, do you, I suppose? Well, that's true. But um, but I thought Charlotte Rampling kind of she had a sort of evil, commanding, creepy thing going on that I was quite into. I I really like her, and I haven't really seen her play that role before. So in, amongst the baddies, um, we mentioned Stellan Skarsgård in, in this sort of monstrous sort of fat suit. Um, it's an amazing role. Um, he's, he's Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, so he's the he's the head honcho of that house, that evil, brutal house. He gives it a lot, doesn't he? He's good value. He, there's there's enough of him, but not too much. There's a lot of, of you know, him. There's, He's wearing... of, there's not too much of him because you only see the back of him as he gets out of the bath. <laughs> yes, he's wearing Gwyneth Paltrow's fat suit. Um, no, uh, he is. He's wearing, I mean, it was seven or eight hours of makeup every day to get that suit on. But, but Villeneuve said he'd seen him in Breaking the Waves in the 90s. Uh, right. That's that, that yeah. yeah. Um, and just wanted him for this role and said that this is his dream cast. So, um, and I think he does have sort of that, that evil quality. And also you think about him in the Pirates movies. I mean, he's used to wearing junk all yeah, over yeah. his face <laughs> yeah. and body. I can't remember what he looks like, Even really. if it's VFX. Yeah, I think he just looks like a big clamshell most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> the human oyster. Um, poor old Stellan Skarsgård. So we've mentioned a couple of times, both of you have, that this is kind of part one of some... I wouldn't say two. One of the most quoted lines from the novel, and this is from, I got this from The New Yorker, is that Arrakis teaches the attitude of the knife, chopping off what's incomplete and saying, now it's complete because it's ended here. So that's kind of one of the philosophies kind of thing. So why couldn't they squeeze this into one film? Is it, is it pure economics, Karen, or is it, is it too large a story to be contained in a mere... Three three hours or whatever it is. I think it's both. Okay. Because they, they started this ad, they're calling it a franchise. They were calling it a franchise three years ago. So they're already envisaging it as they, because Hollywood knows that that's how it makes its money, generates more and more merchandising, spinoff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because if, if you don't make a hit, then you can't make another hit. That's that's yeah. the rule. So yeah, and I also think that it's got a huge fan base from you know decades. Um, and another thing, it's unfilmable. So if he gets this right, now he's already proved with with Arrival that he can he can do an unfilmable thing. Yeah. And also he can, he's also proved that he can do um, something that's beloved. I mean, look at Blade Runner. Yeah. So yeah, I would say that that they planned it in at least at least two parts, and I think you're right, probably three. Okay. What do you think, Simon? Is it, is it, you, I mean, you're, you're hungering for more already, aren't you? <laughs> she doesn't even like Come science. on already. She doesn't exactly. even like science fiction. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, it's not that I don't like science fiction. I do think that this is pure Hollywood opportunism and that they're trying to capitalise on something that they know is a kind of shoe in And I would normally kind of roll my eyes at that, but the problem is it's pretty good. I do want more. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay, so that was June. And now it's our, it's our part of the programme to do some further reading. And Simran has chosen the career of Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Timothy's mother. Lady Jessica. Lady Jessica. So, it's a, a bit funny. It just doesn't sound like it belongs in it. Lady Jessica, who's a, from a Henry not, James novel for some she's reason. She's not even married. <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, Rebecca Ferguson, 
not to be confused with the X Factor runner-up from 2010. She is a Swedish actress who sort of is mainly based here in the UK. And she has been in some kind of, you know, interesting movies, but maybe she hasn't always had her chance to shine. I also should say that this uh, is six degrees of The Greatest Showman because (laughs) she was in The Greatest Showman with Zendaya. But also, earlier this year, she was in a film called Reminiscence, directed by Lisa Joy, a kind of sci-fi noir that's quite camp, quite silly. Um, And she stars in that with Hugh Jackman, who is also in The Greatest Showman. Huge action. (laughs) Amazing. Um, so okay, I like. I like. I mean, can you later? Um, someone's going to draw, draw us both a Venn diagram of that. Ooh, I yeah. like those. I yeah, like exactly. Those. Now I just need to figure out what Hugh Jackman and uh, <laughs> Zendaya are going to be in next together, and then we'll. So she's the she's a Mission Impossible regular of late, isn't she? She's yes, good in that. She was in Rogue Nation in 2015, <clears throat> and I think she's been in a couple of them. Although that could be wrong, because for me, all the Mission Impossible, all the Mission Impossible films have started to merge into one. But she's quite a fun versatile actor she can do action she can sing she can do a bit of romance she's a brilliant villainess in this one she's sort of she's not really a villain she's more of a kind of powerful woman but she's a great villain in doctor sleep if you ever saw that no a couple but, of years ago mm-hmm. it's sort of the spin-off of the shining mm. and she plays this sort of creepy witch character who sort of flies horizontally she's very kind of fun and um she's got this great like red hair in that film um i really i I just kind of want to watch her there's just something about her and i don't really feel like she's properly had her chance to shine until this film this is a great leading role for her i'm quite interested to see what she does next she's got quite a sort of um golden age of hollywood look about her as well she could be kind of like a Gloria Swanson she could be do you know what I mean she could be a silent movie star or something she's got a very I don't know versatile she's versatile yeah but I I mean a lot I feel that a lot of um, Scandinavian actors are are, are like that I feel that they can kind of disappear much much as a lot of Brits can disappear in American cinema the Scandinavians kind of morph yeah but I I was I I think because she's called Rebecca Ferguson and not Stellan Skarsgård you don't and she hasn't got any accents on her name. You kind of yeah. don't see her as Swedish. Well, exactly. And she just... looks just enough like Amy Adams to kind of like <laughs> get away with stuff, right? Like she's not got that typical Scandinavian look with the sort of blonde hair um, or super Nordic features. She's way more chameleon-like. But I think she's kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah, I think she's, mm. got, she, she's great. Talking of Amy Adams, Karen, yes. you've chosen... Denis Villeneuve's arrival for I your have. further reading. I have because I'm a bit, I'm a bit sad. <laughs> As I watched, I, okay, I watched Arrival yeah. and was in tears afterwards. You know, dabbing them. No, I'm fine. Um, <laughs> and then I watched it again on a plane, and it happened again. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? I know it's not hormones. It's fine. Um, and 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 I think the more I look into Arrival, there's a theory that. Everything that Villeneuve did in his career led up to Dune, and I and I love I love online theories. I love them. Um, outside of people saying I'm a stand for 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 Ferguson, okay, a stand. Wow. So you're sitting outside her house. That's nice. But <laughs> meanwhile, Karen's trolling the Reddit, Reddit threads. <laughs> I am. I am. You're absolutely right. Um, Enemy 2013, Sicario 2015, Arrival 2016, and of course Blade Runner 2017. Hope I've got all those name all those years right. All led up to Dune because he was waiting. 40 years to, for somebody to do it. And he says, nobody's doing it. Found that the rights were available. And so that's why Villeneuve did them. But I think 
of all of those films, Arrival is the most significant as far as the development of Dune um, in several ways. Number one, um, uh, Ted Chiang's novella, Story of Your Life, 1998, was considered unfilmable. Okay, and yet made it into made it into Arrival. Um, it's also he he's the best at doing literal to visual, and I also think the scope because he's talking about there are monsters in Arrival, and he says he wants them to be big, yeah. like a whale. And I think you get that in Dune. You get this massive scale, and I think he used to. There's also um, he doesn't like working with green screen, although the monsters weren't real. Okay, but um, can you imagine? I mean, if anybody was going to remake Lawrence of Arabia, it would be Villeneuve. Totally. Yeah. 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 And one more thing, sound, because in Arrival and also in Dune, that not only the sound but also the music is important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he's great, clearly, at hiring or the team hiring production designers that have this amazing way that, that we're not talking about little green men. Everything's kind of there's a there's a, you know, they're amazing. Those aliens in in Arrival are like Louis Bourgeois spiders. Oh, they're very really imaginative things. They're, they're not kind of they're not cliche, are they? Well, he, he, he generally works with with uh, Patrice Vermette and everybody's saying how wonderful Denis Villeneuve is. You know, he's, he's a wonderful man. He's so creative. He's a genius. Uh, Vermette says he's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> Did he base base it on Denis himself? He might have, yes. Okay, I think we thoroughly enjoyed it. Simon wants more. I do want more. I just think you know a lot of people, uh, as the film has just opened um, this weekend, just gone, and uh, people having slightly more divisive reactions. Uh, other than critics like us who really loved it, there are a few people who think it's kind of serious or humorless or boring because it's so long and I don't think it's any of those things I think it's serious and uh, I think it's arty I think it's beautiful and we don't need to have constant little asides to the camera and Marvel style jokes in every film you've got Marvel for that I think you know it can have a different flavour big time yeah hard agree Karen hard agree I'd like to add a couple things people are complaining that the sound quality can vary from cinema to cinema and if if you're going some if you're watching it in a cinema where it's too loud the soundtrack is going to overwhelm the visuals and we've got uh, Jason Momoa for the funniest sides the Guardians of the Galaxy touches <laughs> but uh, don't worry there's more to come Okay, nice. Um, that brings us to the end of today's show. June is out in cinemas worldwide now. Um, thank you very much to my guests, Simran Hans and Karen Krasanovic. Uh, this episode of Monocle and Culture was, of course, produced by Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, for me, Robert Bounds, thank you for tuning in. 